so uh, good day, everyone. Thanks very much for joining me again. Um, I've got a very special guest with me this time, uh, an old friend, um, Tony Sycamore. Uh, we served together uh, on and off a couple of times. Although Tony's obviously a lot older than I am and not quite as good looking. Tony, what do you reckon? Um, I think I'm a little bit more mature than you, and my my looks uh, have aged pretty good. Oh, good. Well, that's good to hear, mate. Maturity was never a question, um, mate. So, uh, what I'd like to do is uh, obviously you've, you've you've launched a very interesting book, which I'll, I want to come on to in a minute um, with the 40th anniversary of the Falklands War. But really, uh, this is about people and about Royal Marines that have served. I, I'd very much like first to sort of to understand your backstory, you know, where you came from, what made you join the Marines, how you discovered the Marines, and then a little bit about your sort of career, if you don't, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, just tell me when to stop. <laughs> it's a long journey. With 33 years served in the Royal Marines, um, you know, there, there's a lot to cover. But I grew up in Doncaster. My father was uh, in the RAF and finished his, his time in the Doncaster area. I went to a grammar school. I managed to leave a grammar school with one O-level in English. I hated school. And I saw a poster in a careers office. And the poster was of a guy crawling across a rope that was stretched out across uh, a long drop. And uh, the poster said, the rope won't break but will you come and join the royal marines and up to then i'd never i'd never seen them so i was leaving school i was 16 i'd never heard of the royal marines and i saw this poster and i still remember it today i can still see it in the careers office window and and i walked in at age uh, 16 and a half and a few months later in uh January 1975, I was joining the Royal Marines, uh, a month before my 17th birthday. Um, yeah, those posters are amazing, aren't they? You know, we did some really good posters. I remember uh, my best mate and I, when we joined, before we joined, we were cadets, and he had one at the end of his wall, and it said, are you good enough? And every morning he used to wake up, look at it, and go, not yet, but I will be tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 they were a fantastic PR uh, tool. It worked on me. Managed to complete training, managed my coveted Green Beret. Um, the drafts open were, you know, in England and with 40 commando, or sorry, 4-1 commando in Malta. And the advice of the training team was don't put in for Malta because there's, it's closing down soon. You won't get that draft and you'll get uh, chosen for something you don't want. And I thought, oh, well, um, I'll put in for 4-5 commando and, and, and go north to Scotland. And of the 10 people who put in for 4-1 commando in Malta, Ten people got the draft. Got ah, and I was I was north in in Scotland, but <laughs> but I I left tra training in I think it was the October uh, seventy six seventy five, and in the January of seventy six I was in Norway and I fell in love with it. Um, I I. 
I just loved everything about Norway. I loved the cold. I liked the crispness. I liked the snow. I, I, I was lucky. I had a fantastic military ski instructor called Joe Cartwright. Joe was a brilliant ski instructor. Uh, and by the end of the, the deployment, I could ski. Um, it, it came to me, perhaps because of my tender years. And I was still good looking then. <laughs> right. uh, we we had some fun in Norway. You and I actually our last time there together was two thousand six. So that was seventy six to two thousand six. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't remember. I can't believe I came back as as an instructor with you guys. And I always yeah. remember when I came back from a night Navex exercise, and uh, I'd put out the silooms for earlier on. To, for a display of the night stars and everything, and I'm sure it was you who'd cut the silos open and sprinkled all the juice over the tents and everything, so everything was, was sparkling in the night. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah, and I hung the others around the tree. There was a tree right outside your tent, and I hung them up like Christmas tree lights. All yes. that. You came out with this display of Christmas tree lights and, and your tent luminous. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Good. Yes. So, yeah, so that was it. So four five commando Norway, uh, uh, and then sort of the next few years, then um, the, the units. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, I, I was lucky. I did the three years in uh, four five commando. Went to Northern Ireland, in uh, Anderson Town. Um, uh, very, you know, for an eighteen year old, yeah. very interesting. Um, yeah. Sure. I left to go to 40 Commando in Plymouth. Um, we did a Mediterranean exercise, and it's then said on the program, uh, no, uh, 42 Commando were going to Ireland. Uh, and I looked at the program for 40 Commando and thought, yeah, I know I'm going to volunteer for the Ireland tour with 42 Commando. And in them days, it was easy. You know, you just put in a, a chit and said, I'd like to join 42 Commando for the Northern Ireland tour. Uh, a couple of weeks later, I was up at Bickley with 4-2 Commando for my uh, first tour of Cross McGlen. That was in 78. Um, I, I then stayed with 4-2 Commando after the, that uh, tour. Uh, 1980, yeah, 1981-4-1 Commando were going to Northern Ireland, so I put in for that draft. Did my second tour of Cross McGlen. Uh, came back. So in the first tour to 4-2 Commando, I was with K Company. And then in 1981, rejoined 4-2 Commando and went to L Company. And that was, a, that was the beauty and the joy of the Royal Marines. This trickle draft system, the fact that you could volunteer to go to other units to do particular jobs and everything. There was no loyalty to any one particular company or particular unit although of course most people will always remember their first commando unit yeah of uh, course yes yeah yeah definitely and, and those uh those early tours was, i mean that was still that was the 70s so it was it was still um very very hot uh so i, I guess that they were they were pretty sort of keen tours i guess he was still learning you know what it was all about out there and and and, and there was a lot of lot of stuff going on yeah yeah the 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 ira were still very very active and almost dominate they dominated the 
uh, South Armagh uh, region yeah. of along the border and everything. We, we were still doing catch up. Mm. Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, and then, and then, where did I? I left K Company and ended up back in L Company. And, and of course, then 1982, the Falklands. Um, yeah, we'll we'll come back to the Falklands uh, in, in a bit because I want I want to know the story from start to finish, really. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, what what rank were you when you went down south, Tony? I was a corporal, so I was a, yeah, section, okay. sec, a section commander in four troop in L Company. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And then when you came back. Uh, from down south, you know, there was, I think there was quite a sort of rejig of of the units and and personnel and all that. I, I wasn't there. It's sort of everyone got sort of requalified and moved around quite quickly. Yeah, 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 yeah. They did. Yeah, yeah. Because there'd obviously been a halt with all the normal drafting and mm. uh, and courses and that. So yeah, big big jig. Um, uh, and, and then you specialised, I think, didn't you? Yeah, well, that's the other thing. The, the Royal Marines at that time uh, decreed that uh, everybody, uh, e even though I was a corporal, everybody would now uh, uh, put in for a specialisation, whether it be a clerk, a driver, an anti-tanker, a mortar, um, even state GG, uh, general duties, it was a specialisation. Mm. And a friend of mine that I'd spent three years with in uh, in four five commando when I left training, a uh, great guy called Phil Shuttleworth. Um, I, I met him ashore one night having a beer, and he said, "Come and join Air Defence Troop." He says two fantastic reasons to join Air Defence Troop: a, to fire our missile system against uh, aircraft, you have to be high which means we drive to the highest points uh, of the country in Land Rovers, so you don't have to yomp up the buggers. Uh, uh, but, and the other great point he, he mentioned was that the um, blowpipe missile system has no nighttime capability. <laughs> so, so, so what a You're in your bag all night. A win-win situation. You drive to the top of all the best beaches to get the best views <laughs> and then sleep all night because you can't fire your weapon. <laughs> so, so that was it. I specialised in blowpipe. Um, we later uh, upgraded to the new system called Javelin. But it was great because that didn't have a nighttime capability either. So <laughs> I, I, I always did feel guilty driving past all the all the grabs as they were walking along or skiing along, and and we were in the in the vehicles cooking up breakfast and, and bacon and everything just to annoy yeah, them after, after laying. <laughs> 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 and then I think you did, uh, did you do Armilla or um, a similar patrol? Yeah, yeah. Armilla was the uh, the Navy's task of protecting the uh, the merchant vessels sailing up the Mediterranean uh, to deliver fuel against the threat from the Iranians. 
so we had yeah. Yeah. Fifth, 15 guys with uh, missile systems uh, split amongst the three ships. Uh, and uh, as we got close to uh, Iran, we, we would uh, go to defence stations and prepare for any attack. Fortunately, none did, you know, none came. Mm. So that was through the Straits of Hormuz and then up into the sort of Arabian Gulf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, okay. And then in the... I'm going to miss a chunk of my career out where I got drafted to... <laughs> when I got promoted to sergeant... Some fantastic bright spark at the drafting officer for Sycamores had a, such a fantastic career in all of the rifle companies. He's never done anything else other than rifle companies and air defense troops. Let's send him to the military correction training center at Colchester, in other words, the prison at Colchester, as a prison warden uh, for his no, first. I for his first draft as a sergeant. Um, I, I, I tried everything to get out of that draft. Yeah, uh, sure. Everyone said, uh, all the old and bold, <coughs> sorry, all the old and bold said, volunteer for a ship that will get you out of that draft. So as a last, a last resort, I phoned the drafting officer direct and I said, sir, I would like to volunteer for a ship's draft. And I remember the, the bugger saying, he said, Sergeant Sycamore, that is absolutely fantastic. He says that we rarely, we rarely ever get sergeants volunteering for a ship's draft. After your two years is yeah. finished at the Military <laughs> Correction Training Centre, we will put you on the best ship of whatever ship you want. We'll put you on that ship. <laughs> Classic. He, says, yeah. you, he said, you can try what you want, Sycamore. You are going to Colchester. After five months, I was kicked out of Colchester. Service is no longer required or RTU'd. Uh, and went to 40 Commando, in, and that's 1977. Uh, and I went back to my third tour in 1988 to Cross McGlen. So uh, I went to Cross yeah. McGlen as a Marine, a Corporal, yeah. and now I was going back as a Sergeant. Awesome. Uh, and then it was like, the uh, rest of my career was back to uh, 4-2 Commando, back to Air Defence Troop. In 1991, we were on board ship again with our Miller Patrol when the, I think it was the first Gulf War kicked off. Mm. Uh, um, yeah. So we were down in the Med. Uh, and then at the end of the first Gulf War, we redeployed to northern Iraq for mm. Operation Haven uh, to, to help defend the, the Kurds. We, we didn't go as air defence troop. We didn't take our missiles or, or anything because there was no air threat. We deployed as uh, basically an enlarged rifle troop. I ended up going back to Lima Company as their TQ, um, which was quite, quite not, I'm not going to say emotional, but it's quite funny, you know, having spent... You know, so 
so much of my earlier career there and doing the Falklands and then going back as their TQ. Mm. Um, and then it was promotion to uh, warrant officer to WO2, and I was a sergeant major of support company in 4-2 commando. And then it was uh, coming up to the end of my career. Um, and by this time, I was studying to be a geographer, to, to get a geography degree, because I was looking at going into teaching at the end of my career. Mm. And I wanted to be a geography teacher at secondary level, uh, but I needed a degree. And then I saw the job advertised down at Romarine's Turn Chapel, where, where, where you were loafing doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> right, I've not, I've not changed. <laughs> no, you had to, with Babs and Carol. You had the best cafe uh, in the area. Uh, the, yeah. I always remember you had the best coffee boat area. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was lucky, I, I, I got a five-year extension, so I should have left the Royal Marines at the end of my 22 years. I got a five-year extension uh, to be the, I, I'm going to call it the uh, property, the deputy property manager, because people will understand that better than if I said the works liaison senior NCO. Yeah, which we none of us ever understood, so that's fine. Except you shouted at us when we spilled oil anywhere or dropped batteries in the water. That, yeah, that the... Because by now, by now, I had to... If you remember in 1977, the, the, Marine, well, the armed forces, every, everyone, we lost crown immunity. So in, in 1987, we could have killed or injured somebody or doing something, and the repercussions on individuals was almost minimal. Mm. Um, not quite like that, but, but, but almost. However, from nine to the end of 97, when we lost Crown Immunity, now people could be held to account, mm. people could go to jail, people could be prosecuted, uh, and our, uh, people who were injured or killed um, would would be uh, could get vast sums of money for comp compensation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was kind of the big change in the day in the years before we could charge you know dummies with rusty bayonets and and shoot at things and all this stuff. Now we had to make our, make sure our bayonets were clean and we weren't going to in, inflict uh, rusty bayonets onto the enemy and kill them by some other other means other than the stabbing. <laughs> yeah. And of course, now we, we had to protect the oceans uh, mm. from the oil spills from your boats and everything. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. And our noisy hovercraft that you didn't like. Gone were, gone were the days when you could just ditch black plastic bags full of rubbish over the side of the ship and things like that. Now, what I really want to talk to, talk to you about now is, is the Falklands. It's the 40th anniversary. And about the book... Um, which I think is quite incredible because what you've done is done something different. It seems it's the same as what people have done before, but what historians have done before is they've gathered in letters, they've gathered in diaries, they've gathered in recollections, they've put them together. But yours is actually the story of a company and it tells a story because you were there, you know, of, of when you first heard about the Falklands, how you deployed there, the route down and people's memories. And then, of course, it touches as well on, on there's a widow that speaks as well you know it touches on on those that didn't return and it touches a bit on PTSD and things like that 
So I, I think it's the first time, it must be the first time that we've seen all those things in one place that are, that are we, we can understand. People from outside can look in and, and understand because it's told in the, just the basic stories of the guys. And we can relate to those that weren't, weren't there, can relate to because we understand those feelings and, and what the guys are talking about. So what I'd like to do really is, is we'll talk about the book in a little bit more detail. But what I'd like to do is, is you tell us the story of 4-2, Commander, your personal story of 4-2 and, you know, how you first heard about the Falklands. That's sort of the first part. And then, and then some of those stories that, that relate. One thing is different in, in our uh, recollections of all that time ago compared to m many people of the UK and, and the army is, of course, the Royal Marines knew about the Falklands mm. uh, because we had a drafting system to go to the Falklands. Uh, the unfortunate thing was uh, on your fourth, first draft from, fort to, from training to the Falklands, you were very, very unlikely to go. We had, uh, from my recollection, you had to have done at least two years in, in a commando unit. Uh, because otherwise you'd have ended up as a 17-year-old alcoholic rather than a 20, uh, 19-, 20-year-old alcoholic in the Falklands. <laughs> <laughs> because a lot of the... Yeah. Um, uh, so we knew about the Falklands. We knew about the Corps' involvement in the Falklands. Um, we knew about Naval Party 8901. Um, I was on leave when... We, we'd just done three months in Norway... Uh, in January 82, we returned to Plymouth early April uh, 1982, a few days back in Plymouth, and we all went on leave. And I was in my local pub. Uh, my father had died the year previously, and so it's about nine o'clock at night. I'm in the pool room of the pub, and the door opened, and there's my mum. And I thought... And so, of course, I went over and, and she said, you've got to come outside. And I was thinking, what the hell's going on? And yeah. she said, your sergeant has been on the phone. You've got to get back to Bickley. Um, there's a war going on. Uh, and that was it. And I thought, bloody hell. So yeah. that was at nine o'clock at night. I think it's about eight o'clock the next morning. I was a train on a train back from Doncaster to Plymouth, um, and it, it was incredible. Within a matter of a day or so, it just seemed that everybody was back, uh, and it was organised chaos because most of our equipment was still in the containers that had just arrived back from Norway. Norway which we were going to uh, uh, empty and sort out after Easter leave. Um, uh, and there was all sort of rumours going around. You can imagine rumour control. Mm. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it was something like four or five days after coming back from leave, on the 8th of April... We were on coaches going down to Southampton to board yeah. a, a cruise line, a civilian cruise liner yeah. called the Canberra. Amazing, um, yeah. Uh, <coughs> and, and, and that was incredible to think, you know, the speed with which we 
now we were lucky we we were fighting troops so we carried little uh we had little to pack you know compared to other people like you know the the mortar troops and the anti-tank troops who've got more weapons and more paraphernalia to pack um and on the 9th of april 1982 we sailed out of southampton on an unknown journey yeah, that's amazing. Absolutely amazing, isn't it? It, it? When you think of, you know, re, you know getting everybody back from leave uh, and then deploying. Yeah, yeah, logistics are, are incredible, aren't they? Uh, and then, you know, uh, that's, what, that's what made it so successful, really, is the ability to, to pull all that yeah, together. Yeah. You know, and they yeah. did. Um, incredible, incredible it, planning, incredible logistics. And it, it wasn't just that. It was all the people, like the d- people in the dockyard, the shipyards, mm-hmm. the, uh, everybody involved, uh, from the people making the telephone calls to re- requisition uh, coaches or fuel tankers or you know, everybody involved. I think there was a real national spirit behind yeah. it all to, to make sure that, you know, uh, bless them, Margaret Thatcher, um, love her or like her, I think she's a very Marmite character, but she certainly went up in my estimation when she made the yeah. decisions, we're going to send a task force, we're going and, to get those islands back. And did you get that feeling, obviously you knew about it when you came back, but did, did you get a feeling for that at the time then, that, that, that the country was behind you know, that, that, that things were going in the right direction to, to support? Yeah, 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 yeah. In, a, in a little way, because we, we the ships produced a sort of daily newspaper and in our cabins, we could listen to the World Service. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we, uh, for a long, long part of the journey, we, we could hear that what was going on and um, we were aware of what the, the feeling was for the public. Yeah, and I guess uh, you got to Ascension Island then to sort of uh, to do kind of a, some training and, 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 and reconfigure the, the vessels. Um, uh, how long did you spend at Ascension? 11, I think it was 11 long days. Was it 11 days? No, at least 11. Nobody thought we'd be there that, that long. No, no that's a long no. time. Yeah, yeah, a very long time. Uh, yeah. So, 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 but there was a lot to do. Reconfiguration of the, uh, the supplies on all, on all the various ships. Um, yeah, uh, but the main thing was was wait for it, a diplomatic solution, because at the beginning most of us thought the yeah uh, the, there would be a diplomatic solution. Nineteen eighty two, we don't go to war, do we, over a group of islands? Did you did you have an idea of you know why you were doing those training packages, which would have been sort of integration with landing craft? You've been doing the amphibious bit. You've probably been doing some um, zeroing and shooting ashore and some yomps and. And, and speed marches and things, I guess, to build up fitness. And uh, yeah. uh, was there a was there any sort of idea then of of a plan, or, or was that later? No, nah, no idea of a plan. Not at our level. Not no. at our level. Yeah. But yeah. Sai, 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 mm. you will be yeah, you will love this bit because in the landing craft uh, folklore. You, you lived up to expectation. So there was one, <laughs> one small beach on the Ascension Islands 
and we we're going to go ashore in LCUs and we we're going to go to the ranges, fire zero our weapons, do a speed march around the island, come back to the beach and have a bit of a, a swim and, a, and a, a relaxing period, get some suntans, uh, get the budgie smugglers on. Yeah, and, and, and then it was going to be a simple uh, LCU ride back to back to the, the Canberra. And true to your history, true to <laughs> all of LC Coxon's training, both getting us ashore was a wet landing and get, get, getting us back on was a wet landing. So hey, we can, ha we have to practice wet landing as landings as well, you know. Can't always can, be dry. Can, 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 listen, while we're here, can I ask you a question? Because we believe we believe at the annual Landing Craft Coxons get together, that your reunion, we believe that there is a prize given out to the coxswain who can get the most troops wet during the year. Is well, that true? I, I, could, I, I I can't confirm or deny, mate, I'm afraid. Yeah, we, well, we know the <laughs> you truth. You should have joined the club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. So you got back on wet. That's good. Yeah, and then and then, did you stay on Canberra then uh, for the journey down south? Yeah, that was it. It was, um, what day are we now? We're the 11th of May. I think it was something like about the 8th of May. Thereabouts, we uh, headed south uh, uh, initially on a zigzag course because of the Argentine submarine threat. They had uh, three submarines, at least one of which could have reached uh, the task force. So we zigzagged down. And then at some point, we met up with uh, Intrepid and a load of the other uh, warships. And then we steamed as a task force uh, towards the island. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Reach, reach the islands on the 21st of May. And you were brigade reserve for the landings, I think, when you landed at San Carlos was the 21st of May. Which was horrendous. I don't mind. I don't mind admitting that. I don't mind. We were on... So we're anchored in St. Carlos Bay. Mm. Uh, got rid of the other troops off the Canberra and we were being held um, in reserve. And it was a civilian ship. And you, you, you would hear the messages come in, you know, air raid warning red, air raid warning red, aircraft 10 miles inbound. And yeah. we, you imagine on, on a civilian crew lead, in like what would have been the, the entertainment's lounge or, or yeah. the bars and that. So there's no armor, there's no, you know you haven't got any, uh, hardly any self-protection except uh, the mounted GPMGs around the ship's rails. Um, I yeah. forget how many, but a number. And then all of a sudden you would hear the machine guns firing and the machine guns firing, you, you would hear the, the reverberation throughout the metalwork of the ship. It, it sounded like being in a, in a huge 
steel tin can mm. and suddenly being pounded by 50 hammers as people banged, banged on the side of that. You know, that's... Because, yeah, as, you, as you know, when you fire an aircraft with a machine gun, you fire bursts of 50. 50, yeah. 50 rounds. Whereas yeah. normally, if you fire at people, it's, you know, three to five rounds. Mm. Uh, you'd also hear, you could hear the guns from the nearby frigates firing. You'd hear the uh, the aircraft flying overhead. You 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 heard and felt the bombs landing in the water where they just missed. Um, you know, boom! Yeah, the noise was incredible, and we couldn't do sod well about yeah. it. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, you're defenseless. Yeah, we don't train for that, do we, Sai? No, no, no. And um, I've always, you know, we take the Mickey out of the Navy, but I wouldn't want to be on a ship. I, yeah. I'd rather be in the jungle where I can stick my head behind a tree myself and make my own decisions. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, you're in a huge. In that case, you know, you're, a, you're a huge white target. It's obvious what you are. You know, all the pilots would have wanted that as a as a prize. And, yeah. and it's full of guys that just can't do anything. Just sit there and wait. Yeah. Um, and in modern warfare, you know, you see what a missile does to a ship, uh, yeah. and especially a civilian ship that's got no sort of boundaries or, you know, protection. No, um, yeah, no. yeah, horrific. We, we, we'd all said, you know, one one decent bomb on board that ship, the, mm. you know, the number of troops who would have been killed, burnt, seriously injured and whatever would have been horrendous. Yeah. And I, I didn't realise until... 40 years later, I never knew it at the time, but my um, gunners, uh, Chris Burns and Scouse Hankin and Reggie Perrin and Shiner, um, oh God, he's, uh, he's going to kill me. He's going to come and find me and kill me because <laughs> I can't remember his name at the moment. But they were on the upper deck firing. And yeah. it, it, it was only putting the book together that I found out that uh, uh, Scouse Hankin, Mark Hankin, was credited, absolutely credited, with shooting down an aircraft with a GPMG. He was yeah. 17 and a half. That's incredible, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely Shooting incredible. down a fighter jet, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so yeah, so so how long were you, were you waiting? I think you were withdrawn at, at one point and then you came ashore, didn't you? Uh, let me just a a answer. It was Shiner yeah. Keneally. China. Shiner Keneally was the, uh, the other guy. He'll know you've looked him up. I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I didn't look him up. How would I look him up? I couldn't. I couldn't have gone to, to Google that quick. <laughs> so uh, no, he'd be very pleased he looked in the book and remembered his name. Um, so Tony, uh, yeah, tell me that what 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 then? You know, the the bit where you went ashore then. Um. So late, late morning of the 21st, we uh, went ashore and Cy, I, I have got to thank the landing craft branch yet again for upholding the core tradition of putting troops ashore wet. Did, did you hear the story about the, uh, the paras? So, you know, when they jump out of an aircraft, um, the, the the first guy stands at the gate, uh, sorry, the doorway of the plane, and it, it, it 
the light they do a, a two light system red on green on and yeah. so they all move forward and then um, when they approach the drop zone the red light goes on um, and then the green light goes on and the jump master shouts go 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 yeah yeah so on the raw marine landing craft the the guy at the front shouts down ramp out troops yeah and apparently apparently the story goes when two para went ashore and and the the ramp goes down in that true raw marine landing craft tradition there's there's uh, about, about 20 meters of ogging between the landing craft and the beach <laughs> the the front row of paras ought to stand there and apparently a sergeant major of paras has to shout green on go jump jump i oh, really jump. yeah 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 be, be, because they were, they were stalled because they'd never yeah. done, they'd never done anything like this before had they no no. no, I wonder why the hell they were going to get wet. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they see all the glossy films where they land on a Caribbean beach and run up the beach to the bar. <laughs> that, 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 that's the, the pornography that the landing craft branch uh, pedal. Um, oh, cool. yeah, so we, we were ashore and dug in around the San Carlos area. Mm. Uh, a few regular uh, air attacks. Yeah, uh, fortunately that they they missed uh, for two commander or certainly our company. Yeah, yeah, and um, I, I mean, I guess digging in around there was it was quite difficult. I mean, it's quite sort of um, it's it's all peat and and all rocks, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's quite prehistoric when you look back on it now. Yeah. each person had a sh one person had a shovel, one person had a pick. Um, yeah, yeah, it's prehistoric. When did you sort of get the, the, the next move? When did you get the next plan to, to move forward? Um, uh, well, I'll skip, skip the part, really. Uh, the, the next major evolution, we went to relieve two para who went on to, to, to do Goose Green. Oh, uh, right. But no know, problem, we mate. Sorry. We didn't do anything. We just occupied their, their positions on Sussex Mountain. Then we went back to San Carlos, and then it was towards the end of May, uh, around about the 31st of uh, May, we got a helicopter flight to uh, Mount Kent, or yeah. to the, ba the base of Mount Kent. K Company had got there the night before and went up and took Mount Kent. That was an interesting one because the, uh, uh, their company commander met the OC of the SAS who said, there is, uh, there are no friendly troops anywhere near the summit of Mount Kent, mm. um, and so K Company went up there, and it, it was it was fine. There was no no troops up there, uh, <clears throat> uh, so that that was fine. And Lima Company went to the top of Mount Challenger, and where we were to spend, I think, the next ten nights on oh, right. on on Mount Challenger. So yeah. K, K Company, uh, uh, Mount Kent. I'm not sure where Juliet Company was. Because, of course, we had Juliet Company, which was a mm. made-up company of uh, guys from NPA 901, yeah. uh, 
drivers uh, and other people from the commando who didn't have a role with Commander HQ, because of course M Company had gone to South Georgia to recapture the South Georgia. Uh, so you weren't on Kent, you were on Challenger. Challenger, which was yeah. you could see Kent from Challenger. You were you obviously um, are covering each other, I suppose that they were a little bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then it, that was ten or eleven days. Yeah, and that's um, because I guess you were waiting for four or five and 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 the Paris to come up and around. Uh, and move uh, and move forward, uh, which was the yom. So, I, I, at the time, you didn't I, had know. No, yeah. I had no idea what was going on. We didn't know that four, four five that were marching. All we knew is, uh, you know yourself, you carry a maximum of sort of two days rations with you. Hmm. So we didn't have our Bergens. Uh, we, we had our. We didn't have our Bergens initially. Uh, we had a sleeping bag and our fighting order and whatever we could carry. And within a, a day or two of being on Challenger, that was it. We were out of food, no rations, uh -huh. no nothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, because of conveyor being, being yeah, sunk, no logistics. Sunk, the, the, hovercraft, uh, helicopters. Yeah, you've got to get those hovercraft in there again. <laughs> 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 um, but, but no, the bad weather stopped anything flying. And yeah. so there was no ration to resupply. Um, yeah. uh, so uh, uh, we're, basically, we were, everybody was now eating whatever survival rations they had. So the next one was on the 3rd of June. We went on a patrol, a uh, fighting patrol towards uh, Mount Harriet. And at yeah. 5 to midnight... Uh, Marine Tony Curtis stood on a landmine. Right. At, this, at this point, we were anything between 500 to 800 metres away from uh, the enemy on Mount Harriet. The only thing that saved us was the fog was down. You couldn't see more than a few metres. Um, and you could, we could hear the Argentinians... Our mission was to go forward and open fire on Mount Harriet to uh, draw the enemy fire, judge what their strength was, uh, and basically harass them. Um, but before we'd got there, we had made up, made up with one of our uh, observation posts who told us there was three to 400 Argentinians on that hillside. Um, we were going to be lambs to the slaughter. Um, yeah, no, it's flabbergasting when we look back on it. So we owe Tony Curtis a huge debt of gratitude. His sacrifice and losing a leg saved numerous people being killed and injured from fortune. Um, mm. But the interesting thing was, because, of course, you, you remember, we never had stretchers uh, there was no such thing as a, fight, a fighting patrol carrying stretchers or anything with them. We had a Royal Navy medic who you know, uh, was fantastic help. Um, but so when Tony, uh, and it was 16 stone, big lad, lost a leg, the only way we were going to get him out of that minefield was carrying him. So now 
recollections vary. It's interesting uh, in the book, uh, 10 people write their recollections about how we carried Tony back to uh, safety. And mm. of those, out of those 10 stories, the only thing that we all agree with, it happened to a guy called Tony Curtis, because <laughs> every story is different. Everybody yeah. has got a completely different recollection. Yeah, My sure. recollection is six people from the side of Tony and uh, someone just said lift and six people picked him up and started walking with him. Yeah. Uh, and we were being, um, we had artillery coming from Argentine artillery being fired at us, but luckily in the fog, they couldn't see us. And so uh, they, they were firing in the wrong positions. They fired mortars from Stanley. Um, uh, uh, fortunately, they missed. We were certain that, that we were being followed. And so we left all of our machine guns to form an ambush while we carried Tony, because Tony was screaming his head off. Really? Even, even though he had morphine, um, yeah. He was screaming. The agony that he was in was incredible. So, yeah. you know, um, and so six people would carry him. Um, you would hear the guns firing in Stanley as they fired boom, boom, boom. Um, and you knew that you had about 10 seconds uh, mm -hmm. before the, the rounds would explode. And uh, so around about sort of eight seconds, somebody would just say down. Um, you laid Tony down as gently as you could. Uh, the, the three shells would explode nearby a few hundred meters, mostly. Uh, and then someone would just say lift and you'd lift Tony and we'd carry on going. And each team of, it sort of fell naturally that we had three teams of six and the uh, uh, you'd walk two or three hundred meters maximum, absolute maximum, mm. before you changed. And, and yeah, and hard going. I mean, bloody hard going. Or you know, normally, but when you're carrying yeah. someone over that sort of terrain, and well, people it, are tripping and falling, and you know, yeah, it's yeah. horrendous. Uh, sure. uh, it got to, it got to the stage where the six people who went to do the carry would take their equipment off and give it to the people who had just carried Tony uh, because you couldn't carry your own equipment and Tony. And so it, there would be this sort of natural rotation of take your equipment off, pick up Tony, carry him a couple of hundred meters. The next team would pick up Tony. They would take their equipment off uh, and so on. And you'd constantly pass around as a comment. Um, your equipment and passing Tony around. Um, he ended up taking three morphine shots. The recommended dose was one. He virtually drunk the whole troops water because he kept screaming out for water. And you just felt completely obliged to give him your water rather than you. So after eight hours of carrying Tony and we were now back at the bottom of Mount Challenger and we had this long, long haul 
to get him up. And we were now just resting in the rocks, absolutely knackered. Um, because we'd, we'd carried predominantly ammunition to go on this fighting patrol. We, hadn't, we had no food. We'd been running out of food now for a couple of days. So we didn't have any survival. We didn't have hot drink. We had nothing. Tony's taken all of our water. Uh, uh, you know, and I have to say, we were in a bad way. And we had to carry Tony, you know, for um, a couple of K now up this hill. And then I don't know who made this decision. Somebody made a fantastic decision because so suddenly we saw running down the mountain was a couple of sections from six troops. And they didn't have their fighter in order with them. They just had a rifle uh, uh, and they come running, running down to us. And they said, right, we're going to take Tony off you. Uh, and before we knew it, they tried to put Tony on a makeshift uh, stretcher using a poncho. That didn't work. They used the same system as we did, six guys carrying Tony. Uh, and they literally ran away with whippets uh, carrying Tony up the hill. Um, uh, and, and we just slowly made our own way back up. Um, so they got Tony back up to the hill in two hours. So now Tony's been injured for 10 hours and the fog was still down. It'd be a further two hours before Tony could be put on a helicopter to take him to the, the field hospital. Uh, 12 hours after standing on a mine. Uh, we eventually, uh, four troops eventually made it back up the hill. I think it took us three hours. Uh, and I just remember waking up uh, late afternoon and I'd just fallen asleep with my sleeping bag wrapped around me uh, outside the shelter on, on a sort of large flat rock. I hadn't even made it into the, into the shelter, just exhausted. That's incredible, isn't it? You know, that is, that's amazing. You know, that's, that people don't see that. They don't think no. that those sort of things happen, but they're, they're, the, they're the parts, you know, the small parts that actually are, are huge endeavours yeah. um, and, and, and save someone li someone's life. So, um, because uh, without that, um, you know, he probably wouldn't be here today. Yeah, yeah. So it was a few years ago, I was working on a, a wind farm and a, and a guy lost the tip of a thumb uh, on a crane incident and the casualty was all right but everybody else around was screaming like headless chickens about you know, getting an ambulance and you know he's got to get to the hospital uh, and I, I got a bit of stick because I said guys he's lost the end of his phone he isn't yeah. going to die trust right. me he's going yeah. to be all right, be all right. Yeah. Um, because yeah. of, I, I just remembered Tony had lost a foot uh, and he lived for 12 hours and this guy yeah. lost like a quarter of, the end of his tip of his thumb, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Don't worry, guys. He's, he'll be yeah, fine. Yeah, right. uh, Two nights later, uh, Marine Kev Patterson in five troop, again, was our second casualty, uh, stood on a mine. The, the, fortunately, they, they were in close proximity to, uh, uh, to Mount Harriet. Um, they were able to get a, a helicopter uh, in fair, reasonably quickly, obviously not quick enough for, t for the, the casualty, um, but uh, 
both guys have um, I'm not going to say made a miraculous recovery because I'm just going to digress slightly because the second casualty Kev Patterson um, I approached him to write a story for the book and he said no and it took a little bit of correspondence um, and then uh, Kev eventually decided to write some words and I'll, I'll never forget reading his email he said writing down what happened for this book has been the most cathartic experience of his 39 years of on his road to recovery incredible incredible worth it for that yeah worth it for that mate yeah exactly yeah 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 so 10 days after being on mount harriet uh, we're going to go get ready for the attack uh, sorry 10 days after being on mount challenger we're now going to get mm. ready for the attack we uh, the co in his battle plan has put forward that there's going to be uh, we're going to have we need mortar fire support so he put the mortars three kilometers further on towards Mount Harriet from where we were. Oh, um, right. Position so, them. Yeah. So yeah. the helicopters managed to land the mortar rounds with us. And then we had to carry the mortar <laughs> rounds <laughs> forward. Right. And so throughout the night of the 10th of June, we, each person, we just carried our weapons, no, no equipment or anything. Each person picked up six mortar bombs. It, the total weight of the six mortar bombs, 55 pounds. So in one long line, we walked yeah. the three kilometers to the mortar line, dropped our six bombs, walked back the three kilometers, picked yeah. up another six bombs, turned around, walked back to the mortar line, dropped the bombs off, turned around, walked back to our position, picked up another six bombs of 55 pounds. So overnight, we marched or yomped 18 kilometers each on three of those journeys picking up weight of yeah. 55 pound it was like let's march them up to the top of the hill and march them back <laughs> again the day of the 11th we had our orders um uh, and and then late evening we set off for the attack on Mount Harriet. K Company, so we got, eventually got to the start line, um, just seeing that uh, we had HMS Yarmouth providing naval gunfire support, just watching the sheer hammering that, uh, that Mount Harriet got. Um, it was just incredible. But I missed, it, missed something out. K Company were the first to go. So for K Company were going to go up if you like, to the right-hand side of Mount Harriet, and they were going to go in stealth mode, the old commando fashion, no gunfire, no support, crawl up that mountain, close with yeah. the Argentines, and then uh, and then take them on. 
and they got within 100 metres before the first gunfire was uh, was fired. Right. Um, and so they did a remarkable job together. Yeah, they them doing it. Bloody hell. Yeah, incredible. It, it does. And, mm. and after that, the, the surprise was lost and they that's when the gunfire and the mortars and the artillery and everything started coming in. Um, yeah. So they got within 100 metres of the enemy. We were being fired at on, on the start line 1,000 metres away. Uh, surprised a lot. The Argentinians had much better night vision equipment than us. We had first generation, they had second generation. Yeah. Um, and they were they were massively surprised about that, but they had uh, night vision goggles and everything, and we just had the original uh, individual weapon site. Yeah. And that, that was only about two per troop. Um, right. Off we went, and what is incredible, when you read the, the stories in the book, What's apparent is this tunnel vision. Each person going up that hill, they're immediately aware of like a couple of metres to your left and a couple of Mm. metres to your right, but you're focusing on what's dead ahead of you. You've got no idea what's going on 50 metres away or what's behind you and whatever. There's there's numerous stories I could tell you about on the way up. it's difficult to say. Did did you shoot? Did you kill anyone? You you don't know because one one Argentinian starts firing at you. You've probably got uh, half a dozen people firing back at him. Back. Yeah, 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 you know, sure. yeah. So you don't know. Um, and the thing was as well. The you were so anxious, not anxious, but you were fighting forward to forward. Uh, mm. uh, you knew with those bodies at the side of you, Argentines, but you you just kept going. Um, yeah. Obviously, if those trenches, you cleared the trenches and things like that. Um, what what I, what particularly liked me was the humour. Um, there was so much humour being shouted across the hill. Uh, it, really? It was, uh, it, it's, it's like, for instance, I dived to take cover. Um, when we're obviously being shot at, not not to have a fag. Um, yeah. <laughs> although th- there was another story about uh, on the start line, my uh, uh, my section two I see Burnsy, Chris Burns, and and the machine gunner Mark Hankin. I could hear them arguing and shouting at each other, and I shout over to her. I says, "What's up with you two? And Scouse Hankin sh- shouts, "It's." Burnsy, he's trying to have a bloody light. He's trying to light a cigarette, and he's not going to get me killed when they they fire at his cigarette uh, lit. And by now you can remember there's there's star shells, there's thousands of rounds shooting everywhere. Mm. And I shouts back to Burnsy. I says, Burnsy, I says I'm on my third cigarette since we've been here. And, <laughs> <laughs> and these two, these two are arguing about cigarette. Um, you you said there was humour as you were going forward up up the hill. There was people shouting things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I dived to take cover, and when the uh, firing stopped, I stood up and and simply collapsed. My leg gave away from me, and, right. and I, f- I felt down, and my from my around my knee. It was just soaked in wet, and 
and you know you hear these stories about people being shot and they don't feel any pain mm. and i'm laid there and i'm thinking okay. and so i shout again my two rc is called bernsey i shout tell bernsey to take over i've been hit yeah and, and and whilst this is being shouted up the line i'm getting my first field dressing out uh, my dressing to sort of patch up my bullet wound and i can hear bernsey take over sycamore's being hit and then it i i can't feel any bullet wound or anything like that and then i, I feel around where i've taken cover and i could feel what i've done is in taking cover I banged my knee on a rock in a submerged pool of water. Right, that's, yeah. that's where my knee was wet. And just as this all dawned on me that my leg is actually all right, I hear Bernsey shout back something along the lines, tell that old fucker to stop having a loaf and get up and do his job. <laughs> 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 this is a 19-year-old Marine who yeah. put in as a, as a tourist <laughs> telling me to fuck off yeah. and <laughs> do my job. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, great. There's lots of and what was, like that. Um, and the terrain itself, I mean, it was it was rocks, I imagine, and, you know, quite difficult sort of. You're, you're going up all the time, aren't you? And I suppose it was an easier place for them to defend than you to attack. Ah, uh, science being said by many before those people should have died old, uh, died of old age up there. Yeah, absolutely yeah. died of old age. Here, but here's the thing: from the start line to the top of Mount Harriet, if you asked anybody how long the battle lasted, again, there's no accurate. Nobody could say for hundred percent certain that uh, how accurate. But most people would agree round about seven to eight hours um it's a thousand meters the average person's walking speed is five kilometers an hour so we should um, take off a, a, add a few minutes because we're going uphill but so you could walk a kilometer on the flat in 12 minutes going uphill carrying a bit of weight it should have taken us about 20 minutes. It took us eight hours. Eight hours to get to the top. And every again, everybody to go and say, what did you do in those eight hours? And they'll go, I don't know where that eight hours went. Because it, you know, it, it, it you can't account for those eight hours because of the, the amount of time you're sort of hiding behind the rocks or crouching because of the artillery and whatever. But eight hours? I don't know where that time went. Don't know. And we got to the top and they were either dead or they'd run away. You're still there, son? You've gone for a gypsies, haven't you? That's right, I'm here. Mate, what, that's incredible. But what do you remember about um, the incoming fire, you know, about the Argentinians firing back? What was the, what was the rate of fire like? Uh, um, heavy. heavy. Yeah. Yeah, heavy. I, I'm gonna, I'll tell you another story because you can edit and everything. But we, yeah. um, so my section, as well as going uphill, we had to push left to go onto the very left flank of the company. 
and all of a sudden, bloody hell, we are coming under fire. Uh, there's a, I, I call it a lunatic with a machine gun with endless ammunition. And it turns out he did have that endless ammunition because he was on an ammunition supply dump. And to um, get behind some rocks. And two, Reggie Perrin was the next guy behind me. He jumped into a shell hole. Uh, his gunner, Shina Keneally, turned around and ran back to the rocks. And for, I don't know how many minutes, this uh, Argentinian had won the firefight. We couldn't do sod all because he had his GPMG on full automatic and uh, we were in his killing zone. Uh, he'd yeah. chosen his position well. And the distance was about 80 metres. And I know that because he wasn't firing tracer. Well, he was firing tracer, but the tracer were igniting after they ricocheted off the rocks around us. Uh, yeah. you, you suddenly see the red glow of the tracer. And, um, and Reggie Perrin, bless him, was right in the middle of the firing zone. And I shouts, I says, Reggie, have you got your 66? You know, the sort of uh, the mm. American anti-tank weapon. He, and all you hear from this hole and the gunfire and everything, he says, yeah. I says, get it ready. And uh, you can hear, because can't, we can't do anything except just cower behind these rocks because yeah. this lunatic is he's just firing for, you know, obviously his life's in danger. And I heard Reggie, you know, final click. He says, yeah, I'm ready. And I, <laughs> I says, right, Reggie, stand by. We'll give you covering fire. Uh, you know, use the 66. And I shout, you know, um, four, four section, rapid fire. <laughs> and you've seen, you've seen the American Vietnam movies where they just, the guys cower behind the rocks and just put their rifles above the rocks yeah, and start firing. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and, and we copied that tradition. <laughs> and, and of course, you've got all these artillery flares and mortar flares going up. So it was like daylight. Reggie Stan, he pokes his head up, he looks around him, uh, aspiring over the top of the rocks, he jumps back down, he shouts, effing covering fire. <laughs> he, he says, you can fuck off. <laughs> Re Reggie's oh, about... He's about eight meters away from me, and he's telling, he says, yeah, "That's not fucking covering fire and all this." <laughs> <laughs> oh my! Fantastic. And, uh, but for some bizarre reason, for a split second, the Argentinian stopped firing. So in that split second, I jumped back mm. up. Section rapid fire, Reggie, Reggie, now. And I can see silhouetted, I can still see it now. Reggie stands up, and Si, you can picture this. He's in a hole, and now he stands up, and half his body is out of the hole, 
and he's pointing yeah. that 66 up the hill. What are we always taught? Backblast. Yeah. So I, sh I shouts to Reggie, Reggie, backblast. He turns round and looks at the back. And in doing so, he lifts the back of the 66 up. No. Um, Schoolboy error. Schoolboy error. And he, <laughs> this is all happening in nanoseconds. He yeah. shouts, no, I'm all right. Turns round. Boom, fires a 66. Straight on target. Bang, exactly where the enemy were. Bang, boom. The next thing you hear is, ah, ah, ah. Reggie is running around the killing zone with his pants on fire. Pants on fire. <laughs> He's doing the dance of flaming arsehole. <laughs> He's patting the back of his pants. <laughs> if he hadn't hit the position, it, 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 you know, it, it'd have been dead. You know, if they, the enemy had continued firing, yeah. <laughs> there's not many people who are doing the dance of the flaming arsehole in the killing zone. Um, <laughs> and he was bang on target. He, he, he took out the gun position of three Argentinians. Oh, that was uh, that was very funny, mate. Yeah, so so then basically uh, that was Index. We consolidated on the other side of Mount Harriet. That would have been early morning. We spent the next night at the base uh, of Harriet because the the Scots Guards uh, and and that went through to take Tumble down. Tumble down, right? Yeah. The next day. It was almost at the rush, very, very little planning. Um, get on the helicopters. Uh, the Argentinians have surrendered uh, or are surrendering. And mm. we moved forward. Uh, we were dropped off. I remember we were dropped off near uh, Moody Brook, uh, the old barracks. There. Right. Yeah. Um, we were an extended line uh, heading towards Stanley. Um we had the paras on our right-hand side, and then it came over the radio um, for everyone to go to ground and stay where you are. Uh, the the surrender hasn't been, you know, it's not a formal surrender. Ah, um, uh, right, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah uh, we were just, we just looked in amazement as, as the paras in, there we were all spaced out, tactical, in a long line, uh, extended uh, line, ready mm. to, to fight. Th these paras, whoever they were, as a gaggle, they ran. They just ran down the slope, down to Stanley. Uh, <laughs> they must have got a completely different message than us. Yeah. Uh, 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 it, 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 and it, it transpires it was all in this race to be the first to do this, uh, the first yeah. to do that, the first yeah. into Stanley. Fortunately, Si, we in the Royal Marines, I don't think we have that philosophy, this um, mm. this this thing to be first. Um, uh, and I put it down to the, the army system where, you know, you join free power as an 18-year-old you'll leave free para as a 40-year-old. 
yeah. and, and and everything is about that that regiment's um, tradition and, and one-upmanship and everything like that. And we don't mm. have that. We don't have that yeah. uh, for that that philosophy. Uh, you know, and anyway, then when the the order came, we walked down into unopposed into Stanley. Um, and that was it. We spent a few days, you know, disarming the Argentinians. Uh, and that was funny as well. You know how we look after our weapons. So we, the, the, the Argentinians were marched out of the airfield and then we formed a checkpoint. And then the Argentinians turned round and came through our checkpoint and started handing over their weapons and that to us. Right. And I, I just remember, you know, they they handed hand their SLR. They, they had the same weapons as us. Yeah. And you, you gingerly took it and went and placed it on the ground. Well, after five minutes, you're taking their weapon and just throwing, throwing. it into throwing <laughs> it into a big heap because there's thousands of them. <laughs> you, can't, you can't afford to fanny about and lay it gently on the ground. Thousands yeah. chucking them and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, funny, yeah. Uh, incredible memories. I mean, incredible. Yeah, all the all that detail. Um, so yeah. yeah, okay. So so yeah, it must have been a later. Dis- um, you know that you were in Stanley and and uh, you know and and seeing them surrendering. Yeah, 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 yeah. Although we were on the outskirts, we didn't see any of those formalities and things like that. Yeah, it was. You know, you, Stanley is a very, very a small. Uh, it, it's either a small town or a very large village, and and so uh, with you know, what a couple of thousand <laughs> troops there, we were sort of pushed to the outskirts. And so, all I'll say is just one thing. On the second day in Stanley, I took... Uh, no, if you look at the photographs of when the troops arrived in Stanley, the streets are clean. On mm. the second day of the troops in Stanley, uh, my photograph shows it is ransacked. A mess, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I, yeah. And I wonder who did that ransacking. Yeah, yeah, um, but it was clean saying, when you went in. You mean? Yeah, it was clean when we went in. Yeah. Oh, right. You have a look at all the photographs of there's, there's photographs of Julian Thompson. Uh, yeah, being a, a down the road. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, and you look at this. this you look at the photograph of my book taken the next day, um, um, and all I know is it wasn't for two commando. So, uh, so then, uh, you. How long were you around before you sort of started to um, uh, to load up to to come home? I, I think it was only like four or five days. Wasn't yeah. long. Wasn't long at all. Wasn't no. long. And then, how did you? Uh, how did you reembark? Um, in an orderly fashion. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Dry in the landing craft or, or heloed out? Do you remember? I can't remember. I can't even remember if the camera came alongside. I thought, do you know, I've got a vague recollection. I don't know. I don't know. And, and sorry, I put in the book, not many people recollect the journey home. Really? That's incredible, yeah. isn't it? It is. It's, I think it's because we were just drunk. Yeah. <laughs> we were pissed. Um, 
And I think it was that just elation of being alive. Yeah. Um, being yeah. in one piece. Um, yeah. But there's a, you know, I, I, I do remember some things like um, getting back into the same cabin as what I'd sailed out in. And whilst I'd been ashore, I had, had the same uh, underwear, the same pair of pants on for 30 I think it was about 30 days, we were sure. So I wear a pair of underpants. And I, yeah. had, I had three pairs of socks that I'd rotate. And I'd just put on the, the socks that were the least dampest. That's what, yeah. yeah, the least wettest. And um, all I remember is all my underwear just got thrown straight in the bin. No, 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 no attempt to clean it. Yeah. Um, right. And... I do remember walking down the corridor, uh, not just me, all of us, and a, a group of the P&O uh, cameras uh, ladies uh, complaining about the smell. Not complaining as complaining, but... Uh, no. Bloody yeah. hell, you lot stink. Really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And yeah. We, we must have done some things. We must have cleaned our weapons we must have cleaned we must have cleaned you know our clothing and we must have done debriefs and we must have done lots of things yeah but, but no like, one remembered yeah I, no very very few people remember yeah um yeah. I, 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 and I, again other people have said it not just me getting back on the camera spending i don't know two three weeks sailing back nice and slow um i i think we did military sort of get togethers in the morning and then the rest of the day was, was our own and uh, the bar was open and uh, we quickly moved into warmer weather so we, we were sunbathing and uh, the, the royal marines band were fantastic you know doing with their band services mm. and, and whatever, and yeah. you know, playing out there, we did. We had a sods opera, and the you know the Siemens Operatic Dramatic Society, and that. yeah, um, yeah, great, yeah. Uh, and the next thing we were we were coming to Southampton, and yeah, um, the only communications with back home was. Uh, I think you got something like a five-minute phone call, uh, you know, and it's on the old radio phone call where you know you you would speak, and there'd be like a ten-second delay before uh, the the person on the other end would hear, yeah. hear your your message, and it, it took some getting used to, mm. and um, uh, and 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 so everyone was making these phone calls. I can't remember if we paid for them or not. And then it started, the message started coming out about uh, how many people do you expect to be at Southampton to greet the ship? Right. Uh, and everybody I spoke to, everybody was saying, don't tell, don't tell anyone, don't tell your parents and all this lot. Yeah, um, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, because we don't want them there. And, yeah. Uh, and I think at something like day four, we were getting the message that, that they expected between one and two thousand people to be at the uh, the dockside. Yeah, uh, and then each day 
that number increased, increased, increased. And I, I just remember waking up on a Sunday morning uh, in the middle of July, and it was just, it was just incredible. Uh, yeah. Even the night before, we'd start to see ships and boats and that following us or trying really? to keep up, up with us. Yeah. You'd see the navigation lights and that. And then in the morning, it was at five o'clock, you got up and wherever you looked, there was a flotilla of boats, helicopters circling overhead, light aircraft flying overhead. And, you know, before you knew it, sort of come eight o'clock, there's just thousands of small boats and boats of every size at the side of us, escorting us in, who was going, it was just, <clears throat> an unbelievable uh you know unbelievable uh sort of moment yeah um, i'm sure incredible i yeah. i wonder if if that kind of homecoming helped as well with sort of you know ptsd and things like that because you know because it, it didn't happen before very much i know it did obviously second world war and people coming yeah. home in, in larger numbers but not in yeah. small numbers large numbers yeah but you uh, know Actually, you know, and that was a big thing with Vietnam, wasn't it? You know, that people came home to to a country where it didn't really want them. Um, you know, and you guys came home to that. You know, that must have been absolutely incredible. You know, that uh, heartwarming that the whole country was behind you. I had no hesitation in thinking that helped. Absolutely mm. none whatsoever. The you know when you when you think of um, uh, I guess it's the perks of being the Royal Marines and we're the Navy Sea Soldiers. And so we uh, had that steady flyback, uh, sorry, sailback. The army, the paras, jumped on planes and uh, within uh, a day or two, going past the Ascension Islands, they were flown mm. back. Uh, right, yeah. Okay. Landed at Bryce Norton. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, they didn't have the fanfare, the welcome, and everything that we enjoyed. Uh, yeah, as other people uh, did the same, but we had this, um, uh, and and I think I'm led to believe the date, uh, the Sunday was chosen for PR reasons as well. Mm. You know, they could have got yeah. some quicker, I believe. I don't know. Yeah, makes um, sense. Yeah, and, and then, uh, and I, I read a book about the Canberra that they reckon. The police lost count after thirty thousand uh, people had entered through the, the, the gates at Southampton Dockyard. Thirty thousand really? yeah. people. Yeah, that's uh, crazy, and that's just the dockyard. Not, not you know, not the whole of Portsmouth and South Sea and everywhere else. Yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing. And, yeah. and there'd all been this talk about we were going to be uh, taken into these sheds and strip searched. And checked that we hadn't got uh, Argentine weapons mm. in that with us. Uh, and, and whilst we all believed it, uh, once we started coming off the gangway, we thought there's no way that they're going to be able to do that. The crowds are just incredible. And how they managed to get us all on the right coaches to the goat gets it, <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I just followed like sheep, you know, and, yeah. and we, we yeah, yeah, yeah. on these coaches. Uh, and and the, the the journey back from Southampton, I think, would normally take three to four hours. I think somebody estimated it took seven hours, 
and it was because we kept getting stopped at traffic lights at roundabouts um you, you as because of course there wasn't the main road that there is now there, there's yeah. the, the old uh, b roads going through all the villages and everything and and we were getting stopped people were walking into the middle of the road and stopping really? the coaches and yeah. the driver would open the door it became a bit of a habit for him uh, and the next minute there's just crates and crates of beer yeah. Yeah. Uh, being thrown onto the onto the coaches it Amazing. was yeah, yeah. and yeah. it was like from every motorway bridge there was sheets saying welcome home and everything uh, um, um, all along the side of the uh, the roads you know sheet you know, signs up saying welcome home and stuff like that um, yeah it was just incredible and uh, I, I remember when we got back to um, the eighth, uh, Marshfields Roundabout at Plymouth, and all the coaches were lined up on the side of the road. And I didn't know it at the time, but we laugh about it now. My future wife was parked on the side of the road. All all the civilian traffic had been pulled off the. Oh right. Uh, yeah, yeah. They'd been pulled yeah, to yeah. make way for the coaches. My oh really? Said, she she was there. They'd been out on a day out. And she'd go, go on, Dad, go on, Dad, pressure who to pressure home. Yeah. Yeah, really? And all this stuff. And, uh, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, and this guy, we could see people going from the front coaches to the back coaches to the next coaches and all this stuff. And this guy, this Marine, jumped on and says, Sorry, fellas, the hold up is the people of Plymouth have barricaded into Plymouth because they don't want the Royal Marines back in Plymouth. They've got managed to get all the Royal Marines out of Plymouth. They don't want you back in Plymouth. <laughs> and, and the police are, are, are facing a riot. And I, I, kid, I don't think he, when I look back at it now, and it was, it was purely because the holdup was uh, well wishes at the front, throwing yeah. crates of beers onto the coaches and everything yeah, yeah, um, yeah. that was causing the delay. And, and and that was it. We were yeah. we were back in in Bickley Barracks. Um, yeah. There's a couple of stories about where families had got onto the coaches to come back with their boys, with their sons or husbands, and uh, their their sons sneaking out of the window of the accommodation to run across the sports field to get onto the, uh, the, the civilian buses to go into town to get on the piss. Right. <laughs> Leaving their parents at Bickley going, where's my boy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, mate, fantastic. A few days later, we went, I think we went on six weeks leave. Yeah. And, yeah, and then back, and life returned to normal. Yeah. Yeah, well, it never, it never returned to normal, but you know what no. I mean. No, yeah, 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 yeah. What, yeah. yeah, what an experience. Yeah, and and then I mean, I guess then then the book, you know, when you, I mean, how how did you first think about doing the book? Were you just talking to some guys and talking about it, or did you want to write your own experiences? And no, you know, no, uh, I had no ambitions whatsoever to write a book. Nothing. Uh, and it was during the first lockdown period, I was talking to our company commander, David Wee, and he, he, he started telling me a story uh, about what he got up to during Mount Harriet. And I said, David, 39 years ago, 
I said, 39 years, I've never heard that story. And um, in fact, it would have been 38 years ago, 38. And then I told him something I did. Uh, and, and again, he turned around and said, I, and I didn't know you did that. And, and then he turned around and said, uh, we really have got to, to get these stories written down. And I, I've got a couple of friends who have written books and had them self-published and sell them for about a fiver. And I thought, that's what I'll do. So I'm in contact with about 70 lads out of the 120 lads of L Company Group. So I emailed them and said, guys, send me, send me a story. Um, and literally, whoever, whoever a story arrives first, they'll have chapter one. Next person can have chapter two and so on. I'll print a book and we'll do it like that. Yeah. Um, and the story started coming in and I started putting them together. Um, and then Major General Nick Forbes and Major General Julian Thompson uh, got involved. because so I, I emailed them and said, would they write a, a forward for the book? And I, I sent, sent them 70 pages. Um, and then it progressed from there. It progressed to what, close to 300 pages uh, and a completely different sort of version of the book. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it, it now, instead of one person having a chapter, it's approximately 166 individual stories from 44 guys involved with L Company, plus a widow, uh, tell their story. Uh, uh, about the Falklands War, uh, including a chapter at the very end where uh, a half a dozen people reminisce about what they think 40 years later. Mm. I, I, it's really incredible, you know, sort of piece of history, you know, capturing it at that level. Um, it, it's amazing. And proceeds as well. So the Royal Marines Historical Society, I, I think, have, have been involved as well, haven't they? Yeah, uh, it, my, the book got turned out a mainstream publisher. Um, yeah. who, it, it didn't fit into their style of uh, military history books. Uh, but the his, historical society saw it straight away. Um, yeah. Julian Thompson, uh, Nick Vaults, they all could see it. And so we... Uh, I paid a substantial amount out of my own pocket. Uh, the society subsidised it, and yeah. uh, we got um, we, we had eleven hundred, uh, and within a matter of months, also had to get a, a reprint because of uh, what had been sold. Sold. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Uh, uh, the, uh, and the, the responses have just been unbelievable. Um, yeah, 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 fantastic. I mean, a fantastic effort. You know, it, take, it always takes one person to to do it. Um, everyone might think it's an easy thing to do. It's obviously not, you know, but, but actually you've done it. And, and I think it's a, and a fantastic record. And, and you know, stories, uh, the stories you've told me tonight, you know, that people will, we get a better understanding of what it was like to be on the ground. You know, uh, everything's um, always, uh, you know, big hands, small yeah. map. 
yeah. um, you know, uh, you actually, you know, hearing those stories and, and the basics of, of soldiering in, in that environment and what, what you did and, and the time it took as well, you know, people don't realise. No, um, no. It seems like a short war because everything's in a couple of days. You do something, you know, you did the landings and, you know, uh, and then there was a few actions and then the, and then there was the, 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 the attacks on the mountains, then there was a surrender. But actually the time between that and, and the other things that were going on, the repositioning and, and the yomps and the, and the moves and everything else, was in the logistics, you know, it was a huge, huge undertaking um, yeah. that, that people yeah. don't really understand the, the detail. Um, it, so, yeah, it's fantastic, mate, really fantastic. They call it the, the fairy tale war, war <clears throat> in, the, in the space of a school, uh, a school term. Um, we sent a task force down, we fought a war and came back uh, <laughs> yeah. all, all in a school term. In, in, a, in a missile age, you know, it's, it's yeah. incredible. The, but the, the other thing that I found incredible, you know, with the guys from Lima Company um, sending their stories, a common theme is um, a, a, a vast majority of the guys have never explained to their partners, to their wives, to their children, to their grandchildren, they've never explained what they did. Yeah. They may have said, yes, I was in the Falklands. Yeah. Yes, I may have, you know, done this. But they've never told what they did. And over the years, they found it difficult to tell their, their, and mm. they've used this opportunity to tell their story in print and the whole thing uh, my, my mission was for last year to get a book out in time for Christmas and so they could give a copy to their nearest and dearest their family and friends and just say, my, my yeah. story was in that book. Yeah. yeah. So, th so they didn't have to explain it to them. No. Yeah. If and I think sense. it does make a hundred sense. In fact, I did a podcast last year uh, with a, a, a former Marine. And he said to me afterwards, and we haven't quite finished yet. We've got another bit of it to do. And he said to me afterwards, you know, my, my daughter listened to it and suddenly said, Oh my God, Dad! You know, I didn't know. I've got your history now. You know, uh, things you didn't. She didn't know about him, about yeah. him, the things he did and done. Because he were he wouldn't have sat there and opened up and told them. And of course, also it's a very difficult conversation to have because people aren't that interested. You try and tell people a bit of a conversation over a beer, and actually they don't know how to ask the questions. They don't really know how to communicate with you, and you don't want to say, "Oh yeah, I did A, B, and C." So yeah. actually. A very difficult conversation to have anyway and people get bored very quickly I mean, as, as you know you know yeah yeah trying to have a conversation with Vivi and, uh, and no disrespect but they get very bored very quickly if you try and tell them anything um yeah. about what you've done <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so um yeah so that's amazing mate it really really is and I, I hope we can do more of those sort of things because yeah. I think you know just selling it to the general public the the the, the 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 sort of general consensus here, the average sort of email coming back and saying, you know, 
it, this is warts and all. This, this isn't, there's no glory. There's no story. There's, I can't think of a single story where, you know, a guy says, yeah, and I stormed a trench and killed everybody with my bare knuckles and, and had a commando dagger through. There's nothing like that. It's just, you know, brutal honesty of um, how we got there. Uh, the main fighting was fighting the weather. Second one was fighting the starvation. Um, yeah. You know, and and fighting the enemy comes quite quite low on the list, actually. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It, yeah. It, it, and and it, you know, it, it's a war, warts and all. You know, it, it, it and it's the only thing I, I, I may have done to some of their stories where there's a deliberate, not deliberate, but where there was a very obvious spelling mistake. I would correct the spelling mistake. But I wouldn't correct their words. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, and so the, that's why the book is titled "In Our Own Words." This yeah. is how they have written it. This is yeah. why there's there there is bad grammar. This is why it, 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 the sentences don't flow, and that is because yeah. you know these guys aren't writers; they're raw marines. No. Uh, yeah. And, but but this is their words, not mine. Yeah, yeah. There, I've narrated. I've put little bits in to to sort of glue it all together, but this is them telling their story, mm. and this is why I mentioned about the Tony Curtis patrol. Ten people give their stories, and it's ten different stories. And yeah. if anybody reading that chapter will go, how can they all get a different version of events? Mm. Because it's yeah. forty years ago, and that's what we remember. Yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. you know, I'm not going to say to you know, the other nine guys, you've all made the mistake. <laughs> yeah, I, I could have made the mistake. That's, but it's just how I remember it. Yeah, uh, yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. how how do people get hold of the book? Uh, it, it's only available. Uh, I, I've. Uh, through me, uh, and my email address is. Uh, uh, now, how do I spell it? It's I-O-O-W, meaning in our own words. So it's oh, I-O-O-W, yeah. 1982, at hotmail.com. Fantastic. I, I'm hot. not sure. I'm not sure. I checked last week, and it wasn't available on the Royal Marine Historical uh, website, but I had a conversation today, and that may have altered. So it may be available via the Royal Marine Historical, Historical Society website. Okay, well, I will put both those links up anyway so uh, so people can access it through. Yeah, uh, and it's a £20 book, which includes <coughs> the, the postage and it, uh, within the UK. Okay, that's good, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, that's excellent, mate. Excellent. Um, well, look, uh, Tony, honestly, mate, thank you very much for... As, you know, we've been talking about doing this for a very long time, and I'm glad we've we've managed to do it because that's, uh, that was an incredible story, and and the book is incredible as well. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Sam. Cheers. Yeah. Um, and um, we'll we'll have a beer one day soon. Yeah. Um, uh, and I just hope I may have altered tradition, and the the DLC rates won't give us a wet land in the future. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> 
<laughs> Mate, that will never change. No, hey? I don't think so. No. <laughs> hey buddy that was really good thanks very much mate that was fantastic all right si. good, oh, good hey. to talk i'll go talk to the missus now yeah I'm you better add yeah I've me got too about, i've got about eight texts from her saying what are you up to where are you yeah. all, this <laughs> <laughs> all right mate all right mate. i'll speak Catch to you later lots of that cheers mate bye-bye bye-bye thank you for listening test one two three 